last parts. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for binding us together by the tie that binds. That is love, that thing that unifies us in your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What a privilege this is, Father, to partake in it, to experience it in time. Thank you for giving us a hope that we're able to abide in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to obey you. And uh, we just pray for those, Father, that can't be with us this evening, that earnestly desire to be here. And we pray, of course, for those that are still lost in this world, that they might be saved before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin. We are very much on our way out of this deep dive. Uh, I don't even have any more additional notes. I'm probably not going to get through all of my notes um, this evening, but I have no more additions to my notes. And so we're very close to closing out this series, which is uh, pretty exciting, I think. Um, on Tuesday, we began with a translation that actually flips the words eternal life. I've been teaching uh, that as a strategy that may be the best way, or sometimes, if you get confused about what eternal life is, sometimes it's easier just to think of it as life eternal. And uh, this was brought up on Tuesday evening, John 17, 3, in the American Standard Version. And this is life eternal. It's actually translated that way, which I actually nowadays prefer uh, only for the sake of uh, confusion or avoiding confusion. puts the emphasis on where it really should be, which is life, uh, which again uh, implies that we're talking about His life, God's life, life eternal. So in this is life eternal that they should know. So we have this idea of life and knowledge that they should know thee, the only true God, and him who thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. So something is worth noting here, and that is that life and knowledge are connected in Christ Jesus. That life and knowledge are connected in Holy Scripture, in Christ Jesus. So this is a primitive of the spiritual life, this connection between life and knowledge. This is a primitive of the spiritual life. That, and frankly, I was thinking about it. It's always been there. For, what are we, part 58? Part 58 of the series, these things have been sort of percolating just under the surface in our messages all along. The idea of knowledge and knowing Christ, not just knowing about Him, but knowing Christ uh, and understanding now eternal life or life eternal. Um, some of you weren't well-versed enough, I guess. Uh, some of you have had epiphanies, according to yourselves, uh, the last couple of weeks on the idea of eternal life. And so that implies that you had to learn, which means you had to take in knowledge. And so again, life and knowledge are sort of intrinsic, uh, each to uh, one another, and this becomes a primitive to our spiritual life. And as I'm sharing here, I'm just saying that these, these ideas have been right under the surface. We've been focusing a lot on other things specifically, but these two things have been right there all along. So I want to do a little more homework on this. Uh, let's do uh, John 6.35. Go there. John 6.35. So these are points of review. Let's see what the Spirit adds, and we'll move on. Jesus 6.35. I'm G Did I just say Jesus 6.35? This is my last day before vacation, by the way. I'm a little toasted. John 6.35. <laughs> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Christ, in other words, is our sustenance. To know him is to subsist on him as the bread of life. 
We don't know this unless we know Him. We don't uh, abide in these promises unless we know Him. He is our portion, the very cause for our living hope, as Peter would say. Go to uh, John 11.25. John 11.25. So these are things we learn long after we're saved many times. John 11.25. I mean, we're not going to understand these spiritual truths necessarily at salvation. We have to learn uh, what it means when he says, I am the bread of life. That's something most of us learn long after salvation through the study of the Word of God. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And just so you know, there's the definite article, the, that's in grammar, that's what we call it, the definite, definite article, the, in the Greek, means the singular life, the life. It's not a life, it's the life. I am the resurrection and the life. So in the original language, you should know that the definite, definite article, the, exists in the Greek. And that really is a strong indicator that he's talking about the singular life in the universe, the source of it, a.k.a. eternal life, or life eternal. He who believes in me, implying knowledge, of course, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Again, knowledge is an inseparable part of life in Christ. How can we say we believe in Him if we don't know Him? How can we say anything about our relationship if we don't, with Him if we don't know Him? That's the same that could be said about any of our relationships. How do we, how do we uh, make a judgment call about anyone if we don't know them? How do we say... Uh, we have any intimacy with another person if we don't first know them. That is implied. And it's no different here. Go to John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. And so what Jesus tells us is, is, if you know me, then you know life. And if you believe in me, then you have this life. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. See, so again, as promised, we saw or we see this connective tissue between eternal life and knowledge as described in the verse on the board, our opening verse, John 17, 3 in the American Standard. And this is life eternal, that they should Know thee, the only true God, and him who thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. So we have this connection, this connective tissue between knowledge and life in Christ. And that makes sense. The question then becomes, well, how do I know if I'm on the right track? Jesus just said, I am the way and the life, and the truth and the life. Well, how do I know if I'm on that right track? Experiencing uh, or experiencing this new life implies certain fruit, according to Jesus. That's how you know. Do you really know him? Have you believed in him? Then you will have certain fruit. Up here on the board, John 15, 4. He said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And then in John 15, 10, he said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the question, again, remains on the table. Well, how do I know if I'm on the right track? Well, let me lead you to the answer with another question. And I'm using the two verses on the board, of course. Some of you probably already have it figured out in terms of what I'm going to suggest here. What's the ground floor for or of abiding what's the ground floor of abiding in love and even life eternal uh, experientially speaking what's the ground floor it's one word that keeps coming up up here on the board obedience 
He just said it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will abide in me, in other words. So the ground floor of this abiding in love, even eternal life, experientially speaking, is obedience. Now, this is why we've been on this series for so long, I believe, at least in part. It's because most Christians are terribly deceived about obedience. Terribly deceived about obedience. There's a thousand and one ways to be deceived about it. Uh, we come from a religious area where, um, you know, everything's a religious formula. Well, that's deception in of itself. There's no good in that. So most Christians, but there's other ways, are terribly deceived about obedience, thinking often like an adolescent does, let's say, that godly obedience is like a chore, so to speak. It's like a chore. Yes, I read it in the Bible, and to me it's a chore. It's something I have to do, you know, to keep my Father in heaven happy. And again, it's that disobedience is merely to make our Father happy. And that's, if you think about it, that has nothing to do with ourselves. That's not even proper perspective on what obedience does for us. It's just, well, I want to keep my dad happy in heaven, you know, so that he doesn't smack me around a little bit. Or when I go to him in prayer, I get a few things here and there. Well, that's formulaic. That's still your religion speaking. I'm going to do this to keep him happy so that I can ultimately get what I want. And the Bible speaks against that as well. Again, this obedience is merely to make our Father happy, not ourselves. But you have to understand that God is joy, and God is peace, and God is eternal life. And frankly, He doesn't need you. Strictly speaking, He doesn't need you to obey Him to remain these things intrinsically. God is joy, God is peace, God is happiness, God is love, God is eternal life. He doesn't need you on your works program to maintain His happiness. He's not going to go home at night and sulk because you disobeyed Him today. Because He's intrinsically good. He's intrinsically joy. He's intrinsically peace. He's intrinsically love. These things not, never escape Him, regardless of how much of an idiot you are today. So that's kind of an aha moment for a lot of people. A lot of people that are on that weird treadmill that I've got to keep my dad in heaven happy for religious reasons, up here on the board. <clears throat> Losing the adolescent perspective. God desires us to obey Him for our sakes. He's immutable. His peace is never going to be disturbed by your shenanigans. He's not going to lose joy. He's not going to lose any love. He's not going to be any less eternal. So where does that leave us then? This is the aha moment. The fact is that God desires us to obey for our sakes so that we might enjoy His peace, joy, and life eternal in time. That's why. He's already got the market cornered. He's already the wellspring, the source of all these things. He doesn't need you. You need Him. You need wisdom. You need perspective. That's what this whole series is about. Don't be deceived. So God desires us to obey Him for our sakes. Why? Because He loves us. He, he wants us to stop participating in car wrecks seen in slow motion. That's my vantage point so many times. Even as a shepherd, I get, this, the, I get the privilege of watching people, and it's like watching car wrecks in slow motion. And they just self-destruct or do self-destructive things over and over again. Now, while my joy may be upset, like I might not sleep at night because of it, God doesn't have that problem. So you have to think about it. Why does he, you know, why, why sanctify us? Why is he... What does He want us to obey in the first place? Why is, like I've been teaching the last couple of weeks, why is love and obedience so close to each other? 
Well, if you understand what he's been teaching, you'll understand very clearly the point on the board. That the reason he wants you to obey is so that you can partake in his peace, joy. I could put love up there. I could put a hundred things up there. Like a teenager, many remain in an abominable state of deception. Abiding in a lie that sin has meaningful return on investment. That sin has meaningful return on investment. But here's what the Bible has to say about sin's I call it ROI, that's a financial term, whatever, return on investment. Here's what the Bible has to say about sin's ROI. Up here on the board, this came out a bit on Tuesday as well. Hebrews 11.25, part B, I'll call it broken promises. In other words, if you want to continue in sin, if you want to continue to be deceived by sin, long after you've learned the truth about you, yourself, the sin in you, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, says the passing pleasures of sin. Amplified Classic has it as the fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life. And the New Living Translation has it as the fleeting pleasures of sin. What do you see? How does the Bible speak about sin? Whatever that pleasure is, whatever that joy that you think you're going to gain by remaining in your adolescent arrogance, it's fleeting. God knows it. Now you should know it, um, but nonetheless, us, the sin nature in us chooses it over obedience. So again, broken promises, passing pleasures of sin, fleeting enjoyment of a sinful life, the fleeting pleasures of sin. A perfect illustration of this is with the person who gives in to the lusts of the flesh. Uh, as follows, go to 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. This is a very graphic illustration, a very graphic description of someone who willingly gives in to the flesh. 1 Timothy 5, 6. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure, is dead even while she lives. Ow! That's pretty graphic, isn't it? But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. This woman may represent either a backslidden believer or maybe even an unbeliever, and theologians differ. Um, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at a principle here this evening. Whatever the case may be, in both cases, the principle is the same. If you disobey God, you fail to abide in Him experientially, in His joy, in His peace, etc. If you disobey God, you fail to abide experientially. In the case of the believer, there is vacillation. In the case of the unbeliever, this state of spiritual death is positional as well. But nonetheless, experiential abiding is on the chopping block, and disobedience um, precludes it in the life of a person. So the conclusion is humble submission to the will of God, a.k.a. obedience, results in godly fruit. Starting with life eternal, peace, joy, and love experientially. It's the only way. Jesus Christ said this, right? Remember the, remember the two uh, interlocking, love and obedience? He said, if you keep my commands, you'll abide my love and reverse. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Remember that? That's what he was getting at. In other words, you can't love without obedience. You can't have obedience without love not in the sphere of God. And so the conclusion is that humble submission to the will of God, also known as obedience, results in godly fruit, starting with life eternal, peace, joy, and love experientially. Here's a key principle from Tuesday's message up here on the board. Therefore, make no provision for the flesh. The flesh never wants to totally close the door on sinful options. 
and wants to at least leave a small opening, you know, just in case. And as Scott said it, hug. Just in case. How many of you right now, if you're honest, have options? You know, <laughs> obviously DJ, right? I call it the little, you know, the little uh, the closet with the secret lock on it. You know what I'm saying? That nobody else can get in. That little area where, you know, stuff that's under the bed or something. In your soul, you know, you got a little, uh, a little shade hanging from the ceiling to block out, make a little shadowy area, right? Where certain darkness persists in your life. And, and the Spirit is saying, pull, you know, rip that veil away. Because that represents a whole host of things, including the deceitfulness of sin. Now, sin can exist in there and mess with us. And truth is light trying to uh, deliver us from those situations. But we still have a free will. And so when push comes to shove, at that, what I used to call the critical point of discernment, you have to rip the veil off and say, you know what? I'm not all in yet, but this is one step towards it, ripping it off. That little shadowy area has been there for 30 years. I'm it's coming down. It represents disobedience. I know better. I've been taught. I have knowledge. So the Bible tells us, make no provision. The flesh never really wants that, though. It wants to keep options open, you know, just in case. And I thought about that because that was one of my favorite blogs that I wrote. I think, um, I thought I wrote it last year. It's, it's actually dated August 18, 2017. That's almost two years ago. And it was titled Options. Time is flying. But here's, here's a... Um, I think this is the opening line in that blog titled 8.18.17. Quote, one of the most destructive forces in a human's life is when a person believes that they have options. If every good thing is from God, James 1.17, then there's really only one good option, God's will. That's it. In other words, you don't have options. As soon as you think you have options outside of God's will, that's when everything goes to pot. As soon as, you see, little veils that cast shadows, that's what introduces and keeps options alive. Because you're shutting out the light, you see? Because if the light's on it, there's no option. That's what it is. Let's get rid of this thing. But if you put up a little veil... You know, and create a little shadow. You can stuff some little dark secrets up in there, can't you? You can kind of keep a few options available. Because if it's completely light, think of Jesus' life, he had no options. He was at the, the will of his Father. Complete light. That's it. But we have these little shadowy areas, and we, you know, we construct these little areas. And some of them are remnants from long ages past. I call them vestiges of sin, you know, little areas where we maybe haven't even learned yet, hasn't been revealed yet to us. But when we come upon them, our job is to rip the veil off, or at least work alongside with God the Holy Spirit in His convicting ministry to rip it off, Let's put it that way. Because God knows He's the, the one with the power to do it. But we can always sort of say no. We can... Resist, if you would. Options. Terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Options. This whole idea of options. And is that not America? Isn't that what everybody wants to come to America for? The land of opportunity? But what do we actually represent? A lot of options, I guess. How many of those are godly? I don't know. I don't know. One of the most destructive forces, though, in human's life is when a person believes they have options. If every good thing is from God, then there's really only one good option, God's will. Interesting how far back our curriculum extends in hindsight, huh? That was two years ago, and it's pertinent tonight. 
two years ago. It's funny how the spirit is perfect. It's incredible to us. But when we step back and adopt God's perspective, he sees all things at once, remember. It makes total sense. To God, it's no different than if he taught it this thing just yesterday because the concepts are implicit to him. Now, just to take this mind bend one step further, some of you don't like thinking about that stuff, but it's, it's good uh, exercise. To God, sanctification is a foregone conclusion because he's omniscient. Sanctification is a foregone conclusion. But to we believers who are bound by the construct of time, sanctification is a drawn-out process. And the further along the timeline we are, the more gifts we enjoy in time. Hence Jesus' words. Go to John 15, verse 11. John 15, verse 11. So to God, really, there is no option. But to us, who are being sanctified, we still think we have options. And that's part of the deceitfulness of sin. You don't have any real options. You have one option that's going to result in blessing. That is the will of God. That is obeying God. There's no other option. Every other option falls outside of that one mandate. And if obedience is that intrinsically tied to love, then if you disobey, what are you leaving out? Love. If you want misery in your life, disobey. Why? Because you lose love. You follow? That's how it goes. That's why he tells you, will you please obey me? I don't have a problem with love. I don't have a problem with peace. I don't have a problem with any of this. You do. I'm trying to get you sanctified. I'm trying to get you here to the center of all this with my son who's perfect is a perfect manifestation of all these attributes. I'm trying to get you there because I love you, because I want to see you happy. I want to see you content. I want to see you stop uh, having a day like some of you had today. Is it really necessary? Is it really necessary that you had any, I don't know, anger or misery or malcontent or disgust or any of that stuff? Disgust might be arguable, but... I'm talking about yourself. Is it really necessary? John 15, 11, what's it say? These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's what a shepherd wants for a sheep. He doesn't want a sheep miserable, stuck in the thicket. He wants them with him by his side so he can talk to them and shepherd them and feed them, and keep them happy and content. That's what a shepherd wants for sheep. He wants them to have joy. As I mentioned on Sunday, the truth, this truth in particular, takes some time to absorb and bear fruit, most of the time. Any slowness is directly proportional to pre-existing deceptions of sin in our lives. Any slowness in this sanctification process, any slowness, any uptick uh, of joy in your life, why is it going so slow? It's directly proportional to pre-existing deceptions of sin in our lives. Some of you are miserable, not really 100% sure why. And then lo and behold, you come to a message like this, and he says, you see that shadowy area over there in the corner of your soul? That's what's making you miserable. Now that you see it, you want to take the veil off or not? First few times, what do we say? No, thank you. Because we like sin. We like our sinful living. It'd be too darn disruptive to our lives. Our jobs, our home life, our kids, our television programs, our TiVo. It's all organized around that thing existing. We've organized our lives around certain deceptions. Amen? That's very true, isn't it? We organize our lives around certain deceptions. We organize our entire lives around certain deceptions. Does it make it right then, for the sake of not upsetting the apple cart, to ignore light that says that is a deception that you're living in? Yes, it will be disruptive to your life. 
But what's more important to you? Living in sin and knowing better or ripping down the veil, suffering a little bit, and then, you know, having, being pruned in a sense, and then growing and bearing much greater fruit in the end. That's all that's going on. That's what sanctification is. So any slowness in this is proportional to pre-existing deceptions of sin in our lives. These pre-existing issues have their own root systems in our lives that need to be discovered. Some of you are in discovery process right now. They need to be discovered and then rooted out. Half the battle is in what we might call the discovery phase of things. The discovery phase. That's part of learning and growing up in the faith. You don't know everything there is to know. I remember this is... No, I'm not going to share that. That's just way too personal. Um, let me just generalize it. I remember thinking something in the Bible. I kind of knew it was there, you know what I mean? But I had this much regard for it. <laughs> and then I read it in the Bible. And then I read it again in the Bible. And again and again. And then I was convicted by it over and over. And I was like this big. So I don't do that anymore. And I'm glad not to do it. And I'm much happier for it. As a matter of fact, I look back on when it was only this big, something I had very little regard for, and I was miserable because of it. And at the time, I probably didn't put two and two together. And then lo and behold, light comes on the scene. He says, you see, that's what you've been stumbling over all these years. That's why your big toe is all bruised and busted up. Because you keep stumbling on the same darn thing. And then I say, thank you for removing this stumbling block in my life. So for some of us, half the battle is right now, which is what we might call discovery phase. And my only encouragement to you as, a as your shepherd, your under-shepherd, is take it when you see it. Do yourself a favor. Um, short circuit... <laughs> the learning process as much as possible. If you see something in the Bible and you know it's true and it's against something you've been living in, then cut it off, like right now. If he says rip the veil off so light can shine in that area of the soul, do it. You're going to be much better off, trust me. Because the longer you go ignoring something you know to be true, there's even judgment tied to that. I'm going to get into that. But there's even judgment tied to that. <clears throat> so after battle anyways is what we might call the discovery phase of things. For example, how difficult has it been for some of you to discover how incredibly partial you are? How difficult has it been for some of you to discover how incredibly partial you are? How you secretly show favoritism to friends and many times family members. That's been a tough pill to swallow for a lot of you. Or for others, how unbelievably arrogant you are when it comes to obeying the Lord's commands at face value. Your first thing, I was proud of Scott for saying this, your first reaction is to try to squeeze out of it. It's like, like a locomotive, right? And you go, Right? Try to find a loophole. The first thing, because your soul's like, wait a minute, whoa, whoa. That sounds way too close to getting rid of that shadowy area. And you become a lawyer, instantaneous lawyer. Some of the best ever. Better than Johnny Cochran. Right? And you, and you, and you try to squeeze your way out of a loophole. You spend exorbitant or inordinate amounts of time studying the Bible trying to find a loophole. <laughs> Why don't you spend that much time just, you know, finding more facts in the Bible instead of trying to lawyer like Satan? If you know it's true, then stop it. Or if you're supposed to be doing it, then do it. Right? That's not hard. So that's been tough. Or how about for others in the discovery phase of things. How stunned 
you were to find out that many of the so-called good deeds of the past are merely wood, hay, and straw to be burned up at the judgment seat to your own shame. Man, I thought I was doing good all those times. Nope. Why do you think we had all those lessons on who gets to define what good is? So you realize what a good deed actually is. That motivation really, at the end of the day, is everything. Not formula. Not religiosity. Not trying to, you know, like the adolescent, keep dad in heaven happy so he doesn't come down on me. You know, like we used to do with our parents. Just keep mom and dad just happy enough so they stay off my back. If that's your relationship with God, you have a very long way to go. And that's okay. I'm just letting you know, you have a very long way to go. But here's my encouragement up here on the board. There's no better day to obey God than today. There you go. So if you've been a stubborn mule the last 20 years of your life, then whatever. You can't change yesterday, right? What you have right now is no better day. So obey. It's right now. You can do it. Now we need to pick up where we left off on Sunday and Tuesday. Go to Romans 13, verse 12. Romans 13, verse 12. Sin's going to lie to you right now, by the way. Oh, I'm too far. I'm not ready. Yes, you are. You heard, that, you heard this message, right? You're ready. I'm too far gone. I couldn't. It's going to be too disruptive to my family. I'm going to have to answer all these questions from my family and my extended family and my friends about why I've made a, a, you know, a 180 degree on this particular thing in my life. Who the hell are they? Who are you, who are you trying to uh, befriend here anyways? Who are you trying to obey? The Lord God who saved you? Or your friends and family? Who... Who's your master here? Because you can't serve both. You're going to love the one, despise the other, or vice versa. Who are you serving? Probably look in the mirror and you see that person. Romans 13, 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What does that say to you? It says we don't have all, you know, we're not going to live forever. Life is short, if you really think about it. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly, as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision. We saw a slide on this earlier. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. That's it. Make no provision. Hack it out. What did Jesus say? If your eye's bad, pluck it out. If your hand's bad, cut it off. Any questions? Today you can do it. You might say, oh, it's going to be such a ripple effect. Well, what's worse? What's the option? God is not mocked. That you must remember. From our previous messages... John 3.20 in the Amplified, for every wrongdoer hates the light. That thing that's hating right now, what's being taught, that, that little thing, that's your flesh. For every wrongdoer hates the light and does not come to the light, but shrinks from it for fear that his sinful, worthless activities will be exposed and condemned. So, we need to get practical for a moment with a principle gleaned from a message a few parts back in the series. Again, I'm going quickly because these are all review points. This is something we noted recently with Augustine. Remember his little story with his ex-mistress running away from sin, but she was, you got that scene like, hey, hey, remember me? You're like, you know, kind of like walking after him. He's like, no, I, I remember, but <laughs> you go over there. <laughs> he walked really fast, right, trying to get away. But in a sense, sin pursued him. We saw the same thing when we read about Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, 7 and 12. There's a persistence of sin. Don't expect sin to leave you alone. Sin doesn't just leave us alone and let us be. It pursues us aggressively 
Don't be deceived and think it's not going to pursue you even after you've had a victory over it. In other words, don't turn your back. Sin doesn't just rest, in other words. When, it's, when the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, that's active voice. It means it's something you do all the time. When it says, be diligent to learn the word of God, active voice, uh, present tense, that's something you do all the time. You see, you don't, you don't get to just rest on your laurels. You don't just get to say, ah, oh, finally, I find my church, um, I got my routine down, and I don't want any more sanctification to happen in my life. I just want to put it on cruise control and just live my life until the day I die because I have all these things I have to do. You know what I mean? I don't even have the white picket fence yet. I don't have the two and a half kids. I don't have the million dollars in the bank. I don't have whatever it is you think you need that would be accomplished by putting your spiritual life on cruise control. That's the death knell. That's Satan licking his chops, going, this is awesome because I can work with complacency. I can work with that. Complacency is one of my favorite sins. (laughs) You must continue to be equipped. And kudos to you for being here this evening, honestly. even Just drag yourself here. I don't understand it sometimes. Just drag yourself here. I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll share this. Um, the last time I think uh, Scott did uh, communion service, I got off the stage and I went and sat near my son back there. And uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. I said, man, this is awesome. Just sitting here and getting fed. Like, you know what I'm saying? And Scott's like, I open your mouth. Right? No. But that's what it felt like. I felt like a child. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I was looking around. I'm like, you guys, you guys get that all the time. It's unbelievable. He's like fat, dumb, and happy. Right? Give me a big meal. Give me steak. <laughs> uh, you have to be equipped continually. So just doing what you're doing. Just drag yourself here. Just just get here somehow. Somehow find the energy to read the blog. Uh, Even more importantly, read your Bible. Make sure you always read your Bible. Even one chapter is better than nothing. Every day, read some part of the Bible. And don't say, I don't have time. You, that is such a lie. That is shame on anybody for saying you don't have time. That is such a ridiculous lie. It takes literally less than five minutes to read a chapter in, say, Philippians. Literally less than five minutes. Most of you spend longer than that in a Dunkin' Donuts line waiting for a coffee. That'll never fly. If it's not going to fly with an idiot like me, it's definitely not going to fly with God. That's a joke. That's an insult. Don't ever say you don't have time to read the Bible. That is ridiculous. You have to be equipped. That's Ephesians 4, 11, and 12b. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. You cannot sit still. You cannot expect sin to take a, a hiatus in your life, a break. It doesn't work that way. You have to be continually at it. You might say, geez, that sounds tiring. Well, then you don't understand God's power in your life. You don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit, which means that's another impetus for you to continue to read the Bible, for you to continue to be equipped, because you don't know everything you think you know. Some of you put yourself on cruise control. I know everything I need to know. I don't want to know anymore. I don't need to know anymore. Oh, yes, you do. That attitude alone says you are completely uh, out of your gourd. I'm tired. I'm sorry. I'm not using the right language. You know what I'm saying? You're like gonzo. If you think you can go on cruise control, you are you're a, a, a lunatic. Maybe not certifiable, but you're right there. You have to do this daily. It has to be who you are. Church, learning, reading your Bible, they cannot be activities. These things have to become you. 
you, you have to live for that. You have to be sustained by them. That's why he says, I'm the bread of life. It's the only way. There's no other way. That's the deceitfulness of sin. It lies to you and says there is another way. There's an easier way. There's cliff notes. Remember those from high school? You don't have to read the whole book. Just get the cliff notes. No. 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 There's no cliff notes in the spiritual life. You actually have to become this, this person. This is an everyday effort. We must also, or we might also add the following divine wisdom, Ephesians 6.11 up here on the board. Put on the full armor of God, that which is the result of knowing the word, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Who wants to raise a hand right now and say you have the full armor of God perfected? <laughs> if we were able to visualize each other, it would be funny looking, right? Some of us would have like twigs and like, you know, Tupperware bowls, like, I'm ready, right? And sandals, maybe a loincloth, hopefully a loincloth. That would be us. I'm ready. I'm equipped. No, you're not. Satan basically is like a German tank and he just rolls over you. <laughs> Put on the full armor of God. None of us have arrived yet. Nor will we ever. The only one that had the full armor is Jesus Christ. I've been thinking about such things uh, in that, as we've noted, Jesus himself said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that's, that's something to reconcile, isn't it? Because even just now, I said, it's an everyday effort. But yet, on the other side, Jesus said, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Well, how do you reconcile? The beautiful thing about the word of truth is up here on the board. The truth is the easiest of all things to understand. That's the beautiful thing about simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, who is grace and truth manifest. He's actually the easiest option. When something's light, is it, is it not, if, when something's light, is it not easier to see? I mean, if you're going to drive home tonight, you're going to, with or without your high beam, or your, your uh, headlights, well, I mean, why are you going to put your headlights on? Because you, so you don't want to crash, right? That's the truth. The truth is light. The truth gives you clarity. There's so much misery in this world because everybody's in darkness. And nobody knows which way to go. And that's why the, you know, the phone bills are racked up. I don't know what to do. And people are crying. And then the next day, i got to figure it out. Woo, woo. The next day after that, they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm such a mess. Because they don't know what they're doing. And you got the blind leading the blind into pit after pit after pit after pit. And then one pulls them out and the next one falls down. As opposed to what? Light. Just light. I see it now. It's actually the easiest of all things to understand. The deceitfulness of sin will always try to pervert it. Hates that idea of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That it really is that easy. That in a perfect world, we would... See truth in the Word of God and just simply obey it. And because of that, we would abide in His love. That's, that's what light does. We get given the light. We obey it. We say, thank the Lord for, for vision. I'm just going to do what I do in the light. End of story. God's happy. I'm happy. My family's happy. My friends are happy. Well, they might not be. And if they're unbelievers in the family, you know what I'm saying. The truth is actually the easiest of all things to understand. Life is only, I've taught this over and over again. Life is only complicated because sin exists. And some of us are deceived and we don't want to give up. And so when we say, I don't want to give up, or I don't want to give in to the light, what we're basically saying is, I want to remain miserable. <laughs> I want to remain at least partially in the dark. That's tantamount. It's the same thing. Rejecting light 
leaves you with what? Darkness. Is there any happiness in darkness? Nope. Any peace? Nope. Contentment? Nope. Happiness? Nope. Love? Nope. None of it. It's all gone because it's dark. All there is is like infighting, devouring each other in there. Here, in the light, love each other. Laying down lights for one another. This is easy. This is hard. This is exhausting. Think about how easy it is <clears throat> to make decisions when God the Holy Spirit is right there by your side saying, this is the truth, my child. Use it. How easy is that? You have the only person you can trust telling you what to do. Telling you how to live. Telling you how to love. Telling you all these things. You have the one person you can trust. And a bazillion other idiots out there who are telling you otherwise. Friends, family, books, authors, TV shows. A bunch, a bunch of morons trying to supplant the one true source of truth right here. And God the Holy Spirit saying, this is it. Look at it. It's not even that big of a book. It's, I mean, it's a sizable book, but come on. It's not that big of a book. And you could read it easily once a year through. I know a lot of people do that. They just read the Bible. Whoop, whoop, whoop. They make it a habit. They go right through the Bible once a year. Think about how easy it is to make decisions when God the Holy Spirit is right there by your side saying, this is the truth. Use it. We might consider this our times of experiential abiding in the sphere of eternal life. Isn't that what Jesus promises us? A certain ease in laboring to His glory? I mean, how hard is that? It's not hard to do what I just described. Isn't it nice to rejoice in victorious moments like the one with, say, Augustine and his mistress? We laughed about it, but the truth is I was very happy for him in that moment. that He was able to turn away from sin from a human that was pursuing him in unrighteousness. To me, that's a victory. One that he obviously didn't uh, have in previous times in his life. Isn't it encouraging that not so long ago, you weren't strong enough to reject a certain temptation that you now can overcome by faith? Isn't that awesome? Who doesn't have something like that in their life? That not so long ago you weren't strong enough to reject it. But now you can, by faith. That's a victory. That's amazing. That's awesome. It means you're being sanctified. And you're all the better for it. And when you reflect on such things, doesn't the following resonate all the more? 1 John 5, 4 in the Amplified. For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world, our continuing, persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Doesn't that just resonate all the more in you? Of course it does. And who do we have to thank for this continual encouragement? John 14, 26, up here on the board. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Well, what if we don't read our Bible, though? What's he going to bring into remembrance? To our previous point, the truth is the easiest of all things to understand. So, what's the problem then? If it's that easy, why doesn't everybody just go, oh, duh, I'll just walk in the light? You know, like the Bible says, I'll just walk in the light as a child of the light. I mean, if I have the privilege to do so, I didn't before. I was a son of disobedience, walking in darkness, walking in the lust pattern of my own flesh. Before, I couldn't do it. But now I have the privilege of walking in the light. That seems like a no-brainer. But then what's the problem? Well, it's the reason for 58 parts so far on a series called The Deceitfulness of Sin, because sin will always be antagonistic to what the Holy Spirit convicts us of, always. 
So if we let our guards down, we will surely be tripped up. Without a constant diet of the bread of life, the word of truth imparted to our souls, we lose our sure-footedness. We lose our sure-footedness. We always have this. You ever notice like on a, on a, on a day that you're 100% here and it's like a little microcosm of what I'm talking about. Of course, we're talking about life. But you walk outside, you get a message, you're totally convicted, you're so secure, and then six hours later, you have the same doubts again. Well, maybe that's when you should go read your Bible or go to Him in prayer. Find a time. Find a time. We need a constant diet of the bread of life or we lose our sure-footedness. We become infected or diseased and that's when we begin to doubt. As we slip outside the boundaries of the sphere of eternal life itself, experientially speaking, of course, we lose sight of it. The disease I mentioned, of course, is sin. It's sin. It's what sin does. Sin brings death. That's what the Bible tells us. Sin is death. It's the the one that ushers death in. It is death. It's described as darkness, as death, up here on the board. <clears throat> the serpentine pattern. Sin, at the core, wants us to question God. Our deliverance is tied to our persistence in counting our true blessings. This is an old one. We're probably about, I don't know, two-thirds out of the mine shaft. Remember this? Obedience, the genesis, one aspect of the motivation for obedience was living a life of gratitude. And when you're grateful, you obey. And when you obey, guess what? You're, in, you're delivered. You're in the sphere that we've been talking about, the very sphere of God, experientially. Up here in the board, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, I'm just about ready to close as we've been emerging from this deep dive, the litmus test has been presented to us as follows. This has been back, this has been coming up, I don't know, every 15 or 20 lessons or so. The simple definition for sin <clears throat> sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. So, what we need to remember is that we tend to get complacent in our living. If you become complacent, you, it's guaranteed you will become deceived. It's guaranteed because it's just a tug of war, especially in America. I mean, if you lived in the, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the, um, the worst parts, the most underdeveloped parts of the world, some parts like um, where uh, Joey and I went to India, southeast India, where there's like no running water necessarily, you know, none of that stuff. TVs, electricity's on and off all day. It's not a guarantee, that kind of a thing. There's fewer distractions. And so in some ways, the tug is less or at least different. But in America, we have a, a million and one things vying for our attention, vying for our affection. And we know that once, once the world has our affection, once sin has our affection, there goes our direction. And the next thing you know, we're walking away from that place, that place of gratitude, of, of love, of peace, of joy. And so we have to, we cannot become complacent. <clears throat> this is something from another blog, not so long ago, titled, But They're a Good Person. And I'll leave you with this. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, up here on the board. The only reason why we do not more clearly see this foulness 
is because we are accustomed to it. Just as those who work daily among offensive odors at last cease to smell them. It's so true. We're all going to go out now into this ridiculous thing called America. I'm not picking on my country. I'm glad I'm here and not some places where I'd get shot. So I'm not picking on my country. I'm just saying we're going to go back out into a sewer pipe where the entire world exists in darkness. The entire world exists in darkness. It has nothing to share with us except what? Darkness. That's all it has to share with us. No light, just darkness. A bunch of perversions. And in Satan's normal fashion, he will use the right language. He will get you saying, that's not that bad, though. I mean, you know, they're not that bad. I should just go ahead and, you know, join the fray. That's not that bad. I mean, I know it's off, but come on, it's not that bad. That's how it starts. You let your guard down, next thing you know, you're in the ship of fools, heading out to sea. And you forgot your Bible. Son of a gun. Do not be duped by the deceitfulness of sin. Gather as much data as you can, for time is short, as is life. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of studying your word. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.